0: It's Aspen Ideas To Go from the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson. Ted Sarandos hasn't always been chief content officer for Netflix. In the 1980s, he worked part-time at a strip mall video store to put himself through college. Later, he ended up running the chain of video stores. In 1999, he got a phone call from Reed Hastings, the founder of Netflix. They had a meeting in Silicon Valley.
1: In this conversation, I thought i had either met uh, the the greatest visionary I've ever seen, or a crazy person, but basically he would describe Netflix almost exactly like it is right now. And the internet was so slow and so expensive at that time, it was so abstract that that could possibly be true.
0: Today, Sarandos talks about how Netflix has transformed the entertainment industry. Aspen Ideas To Go brings you compelling talks from on-stage events hosted by the Aspen Institute. The Institute is a nonpartisan forum for values-based leadership in the exchange of ideas. Today's discussion is from the Morris series held by the Institute's Society of Fellows. In early 2013, Netflix transitioned from a distribution company to a distribution and content creation business. The company's first original shows were Lilyhammer, House of Cards, and Orange is the New Black. Five years later, Netflix produced a ridiculous amount of original programming, according to Quartz. In 2018, the company released 1,500 hours of original series, movies, and other productions. The company was on the leading edge of streaming entertainment. But now, competitors like Apple, Disney, Comcast, and CBS are stepping up to the plate. How will Netflix stay relevant in an increasingly crowded market? Sarando speaks with Derek Thompson, a staff writer at The Atlantic. He writes about economics, labor markets, and the media. Here's Thompson.
2: So, eight years ago, uh, I was called into my editor's office at The Atlantic, and I was asked to write my first magazine story. And the editor of the magazine calls me in, and he shuts the door, and he says, I have this really cool idea for you. I think it perfect for you to write for our summer issue about the biggest ideas of the year. He said, Netflix is getting into the original content business. They're buying their first series of of television shows. I believe Lilyhammer was technically the first, but House of Cards, one of the most famous to debut here in the U.S. Um, I think this is going to be huge. Derek, what do you think? And here is my huge opportunity to kickstart my print magazine career. And I remember distinctly, I told my editor,
0: eh, (laughs) <laughs> I don't know. I don't
2: know if the whole thing is going to. I don't know if it's going to work out. I, I don't know if they're going to keep buying stuff. I mean, it's so expensive. hundred million dollars, like just for a House of Cards. There, there, there's no way this sort of trend continues. Um, that was catastrophically wrong. Uh, journalism, they say, is a, a first draft of history. Um, those who get the first draft wrong are typically not lucky enough to be able to co-produce a second draft of history, which may be more accurate. So I I see this as my opportunity um, to co-produce just that, a a second draft of the history and the future of Netflix, which is, of course, a history and future um, of uh, video entertainment itself. Ted, um, I shared a little bit of embarrassing uh, details from my past. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about uh, how you went from college and an Arizona video store to being the co-founder of Netflix?
1: Uh, not the co-founder, but I will tell you, the I was uh, going to school, working in a video store to pay for it, uh, and I was sure, oddly, that I was going to be a journalist from the time I was about 10 years old, and I was uh, edit- editing the college newspaper, and my part-time job was working in this video store, and I had an epiphany at some point when I was going to move on from community college to university was uh, that I wasn't a very good writer. And so the chances that I was going to be a journalist without the ability to write well uh, was not very good. And I really didn't have a plan B. And I was telling the guy who owned the chain of video stores I worked at that my dilemma, which was I don't really think I'm going to be good at this. And this is the only thing I've ever really thought I would be doing. And uh, he said, well, in the time that I was working for him, in that couple of years, um, he and his wife had a few kids. and. Uh, he had grown the store from the chain from one store to nine stores in a few years, and he was never home. And he said, look, I, I need to take some time off and be home with my family, or my wife's gonna, this is gonna be short-lived. Uh, and I was gonna, how about, while you figure it out, he just turned over the, the chain to me to run. Just literally just kinda, you know, like gave me the big keys, you know? Uh, and so basically with a very low, it felt pretty low stakes in terms of the risk, but um, I found myself, um, in the middle of what turned out to be a combination of film school and business school, uh, running a store without a net, uh, running a chain of stores without a net, and and watching everything and ever produced and put on video, uh, because video stores were famously empty all day, because they did all their business the last couple hours of the day, um, so I could really, we, I literally made it a point to just to dig into Fellini films and uh, Carousel You Give yourself and a master yeah, in the history. Yeah. media. Yeah. Uh, and it turned out to be this funny thing, which is that when you start seeing these things, you start seeing patterns, and uh, and then I started when people would come in to check movies out and they'd say, "Oh, I love this movie." I'd go, Oh, you love that movie. You're gonna love this one, and and it just became a part of the ongoing thing. And I never did finish my education, uh, and I didn't, uh, um, and I went from doing work running these chain of video stores to video distribution, uh, and then I have to brief window back to retail when I met Reed Hastings in 1989. Um, uh, 1999, I get this call, I was working a ch- for a chain of stores that um, I, I negotiated the first of its kind of the, uh, revenue share deal on DVD with a couple of the studios. It got into the, pra- the trade press, and Reed Hastings, who founded Netflix, um, uh, saw the article and just said, oh, like, Reed knew everything, he's a great engineer, and he didn't really know much about the video, the movie business. Mm-hmm. So he needed somebody to help out with that part of the business. And, kind of summons me to come up to Silicon Valley. My very first e-commerce transaction was to buy that plane ticket. <laughs> uh, and um, and I, we had a meeting in a strip center uh, in, in Los Gatos, um, and we at the, in this conversation, I thought I'd either met uh, the, the greatest visionary I've ever seen or a crazy person, and I wasn't smart enough to know the difference at the time. Uh, but we basically, he described Netflix almost exactly like it is right now in 1999. Hmm. And the internet was so slow and so expensive at that time. It was so abstract that that could possibly be, be, be true. Um, but he said it with such conviction mm-hmm. and such clarity. And I remember he was explaining Moore's Law to me. Mm-hmm. I said, Well, because I, I said, I, I, I don't think, because he said his big bold statement was, All filmed entertainment is going to come into everyone's homes on the internet. Mm-hmm. And I said, I, Someone just emailed me a South Park clip it took seven days to open I don't think that's possible and he said no no the internet's gonna get twice as fast at half the price every 18 months it's called Moore's Law and I just nodded like I knew what I was talking about oh Moore's Law of course and uh, and I went home and I remember thinking I wasn't sure honestly today I can not tell you if I actually believed him at the time but I do believe that no one probably ever did a life-changing or world-changing thing without telling somebody first I thought maybe he just told me you know (laughs)
2: Uh, one small detail of that that I love is the fact that when you were working at the video store, you spent, you, you, you knew so much about the inventory that when people came in and said, you know, I like uh, Annie Hall, what should I watch next? Yeah. You could give them recommendations. Yeah. So you were the original human algorithm for recommendations. <laughs> <laughs> <it's> <laughs> yeah. They basically well, just trying, found a way somebody, to digitize it, your mind.
1: It's yeah. like the fun thing would be like if somebody, you, you, if you did stumble into somebody in Phoenix, Arizona who liked a Woody Allen movie, uh, they, would, <laughs> they, they would also like an Albert Brooks movie, and they never heard of Albert Brooks. You know, so you were able to make those kind of connections, and I had a lot. entertained myself doing it. But. Right. So for the longest
2: time, Netflix was, a, it, you guys were a distribution company. Yes. You took video, you took movies and television shows that existed, and when you were a DVD business, you sent DVDs to people's homes. Right. And when you became a streaming business, you streamed right. content owned by other people to people's homes. And you transitioned from a di- distribution business to a content. And distribution business. And what I find so interesting about that transition that I'd love you to talk about a little bit is that when you're in the distribution business, you know exactly what you've got with your content. Yeah. You know when you're sending someone a video of Citizen Kane, what Citizen Kane was and whether people tend to like it. You know when you buy the rights to Cheers. Did people like Cheers? Yes, they did. So you know that it's popular. When you're in the content business, you have no clue what you're making. Yeah. You have no idea. You are approving I mean, the director doesn't know, the actors don't know, the writers don't know how, it's, how good it's going to be. So what was that transition like? What were some of the growing pains shifting from a distribution company to a company that's getting into the business of buying content that doesn't even exist yet?
1: Well, it has to be that when you look at those, basically I spend my entire career, even going back to those, those days at the video stores and even in my team at Netflix, trying to figure out what all this stuff, what everything, what all those things that you just listed up, what do they mean? And do they mean anything in to anything else? So when, but your, your love of cheers doesn't really tell me about your desire to see other things and what, it, what makes cheers like other things? And so trying to figure out all those kind of things is really important on the distribution side, because you are trying to figure out, you're, trying, you're, you're, um, you're gathering and capturing demand. Right. You're not creating demand. Right, You're studying yeah. taste. Right, The demands were already created, the demand was already created. Yeah. So here you're trying, but now in the new part of what we do today, uh, you know, starting with Lily Hammer and House of Cards and Orange is the New Black, it is now we have a brand that we have to create demand for. Mm-hmm. And we have to figure out how to make, push this thing out into the zeitgeist and something that people care about. And it was kind of, it was funny, our first choice of, of House of Cards, the first deal was Lily Hammer and then the first show, or the first deal was House of Cards and the first show to hit was okay. Lily Hammer. And um, they probably couldn't have been much different. But House of Cards was, I would say, like the, a no-brainer. It's like every uh, HBO wanted it, FX wanted it, AMC wanted it. Um, it had um, Kevin Spacey, who was a big deal at the time. Uh, <laughs> uh, Robin Wright, um, the three scripts by Bo Willimon that had been written were amazing. He was nominated for an Oscar that year for writing a mo- for writing a film. Uh, David Fincher was going to direct television for the first time. I think he's one of the greatest contemporary directors alive. So it felt and
2: based on a really compelling British... A, an
1: British incredible music. show that I yeah. love, the British yeah, version of, of House of Cards. So it felt, you know, like it, would, it felt very low risk in that way, even though it was a lot of money and we'd never done it before. Um, but the big thing was we had to convince the talent, why do it with us? You know, so we famously now gave them 26 episodes without no pilot and a promise not to give them any notes on uh, the production. And, uh, but, but, but the reason I did that was because there was no reason they should have done it with us. We had never created an original or launched an original anything. So basically, I had to just go to them and say, look, here's what's, here's what's gonna set us apart from everybody else. At that time, you were likely get a pilot order. You, a direct-to-season order was, was pretty rare, and we went direct to two seasons. And so that was the way that I could kind of pull them over the finish line to try to do it with us.
2: But this is really interesting, because it gets a little bit to the, to the future of content that we're gonna get yeah. into in a second. But this attitude of light touch, I'd love you to tell us a little bit about whether it's still a philosophy of Netflix to be relatively light touch. Because that is something that would distinguish Netflix from say, NHBO or some other media company that's famous for the executives giving the directors, the producers, the actors, really strong notes when they see those initial cuts. Yeah,
1: strong and lengthy notes. Uh, It's funny, at the beginning, it was mostly out of necessity. We had no people. I didn't have enough. no team to give notes. And I told David Fincher, you don't want me giving you notes. You don't want me giving you notes. And he said, no, I might want some feedback. I go, I bet you don't. I bet you don't. Um, and, but I, but I, I knew enough people who were making shows for other people who would share these horror stories. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's one show that was on Cinemax that would get 80 pages of notes per episode. Oh. Good God. So thinking about it, that process and how they would go through it, and I knew that it made everybody crazy. Mm-hmm. And one thing that we had a, a really interesting corporate philosophy at Netflix around our business culture, uh, which was you know, trying to hire rock stars and give them the tools to do the best work of their life and get out of their way and empower them and look for the people who want to work in that environment, not with a lot of rules. And it works. It turns out it works really great in the creative process, too. So I, the real art of what I do and what my team does is pick that show, pick that show runner, pick that writer, and then let them, then give them the tools they need and let them get it done. But they're not, we're not gonna, I'm not gonna write a better episode of television than Bo Willimon, <laughs> you know? So, and, and my, so this, the real art is just like any other executive hire. Is hire someone who's better at it than you are, right? And then help and, and support the artist. Don't make them crazy, because a lot of those in those notes that you're getting from the network, it's things like, that person shouldn't have a mustache. <laughs> why is that person wearing a blue shirt? You know, that, those kind of things. You know, why is the couch facing east instead of west? And and it's all those it's kind extreme of
2: extreme backseat driving,
1: extreme, right. extreme. and level. And, and it's a there's layers and layers of executives who are petrified for their jobs. Who basically want to va- add value all the time and they weigh that value by how much feedback they gave whether it was useful or not I think and then some of it might be a healthy creative struggle I mean maybe maybe artists need a foe and these the studio and the network becomes that foe that drives the artist there's some of that is true but for the most part what I find is no they don't, don't want to fight you know they really want to make the best things are possible they have the best vision of the best version of what they came in to sell you. The other danger
2: of, uh, of, of the corporate executives of the media company, the entertainment company, determining, you know, writing 80 pages for every single episode or 200 pages for every movie is that the director's vision is not that which ultimately makes it into the movie. That Correct. the movies that are put out by the studio just end up being studio products. They're like, here, we Correct. have our set beats. If you got to hit the beats. If you miss the beats, you're going to get six pages about beat uh, two being missed. Um, Another incredible and and, and really interesting inflection point that happened in 2011 wasn't just that you transferred from a distribution company to a content company, it's also that you transferred from a domestic company to an international company. In 2011, I believe there were close to zero subscribers outside the United States, maybe some in Canada. Five years later, half of your subscribers were international. Yeah. How did you, when did you decide that Netflix had to be a global company and how did you start to make that shift?
1: Well, keep in mind we were a local, we were a domestic company <laughs> mostly because we were a DVD by mail company. So when I told you Reed described in 1999, he, it was global in his vision uh, right away. The internet was global, so there was no reason that, we, that, that distribution has to be fragmented mm-hmm. because, uh, except before up to the up to the internet, right. because there's satellites, there's wire, there's cable, uh, there's prints and uh, there's prints that have to be moved around. There's all these physical things that make Distribution fragmented, but the internet. There's no reason for it to be fragmented at all. The internet can serve the world simultaneously, so that's now the now the ability to be global exists. The other one is is you know what the um, the the entertainment business has historically been half the U.S. and the other half is the world, <laughs> and which kind of makes no sense since we're such a small part of the population. Uh, but it's just the way that it, you know we we have a big market that we got a jump start on producing for the population was big enough, the market was big enough to produce well for, and the content traveled around. So instead of small countries investing in local production, they would take American shows and movies and dub them into local languages. And so it was a pretty uh, entertainment business, mostly homogenized, 50-50 domestic. But most companies that are, most internet companies, uh, global internet companies, uh, ex-China, the US is as small as 20% of their business. And where our bet was is that over time that the entertainment business would become similar in that way.
2: How do you guys determine whether or not a show is successful?
1: Um, what is it, how many people are watching it relative to what it costs? I mean, really, basically that... It's, relative, it's relatively old-fashioned. That's pretty old-fashioned in that way. In that yeah. way. And, but maybe different from motivation. Our motivation for it, though, is we feel like if we keep shows on that are really expensive that no one watches, uh, that creates an opportunity cost for the show that people would watch. Mm-hmm. So it's a, almost a double hit. Um, and that's not to say that shows have value some of the shows have value beyond their watching uh, Brand halo and awards and all those things that make the brand really strong But I don't think they're mutually exclusive our, our most popular shows are our most award-winning shows So we don't have to say well. you, ha- you have to make tiny hard-to-follow things that, to win an Oscar um, You can make you know really great films that are also quite popular And they will also be well reviewed and well and, and award-winning if they're great
2: it's interesting that your way of Of analyzing whether or not a show is successful is traditional because the business model is not traditional. The business model with television is you get a little bit of money from your affiliate fees but a lot of that a lot of that is is being paid for with ads. So if more people are watching the show then you get to pay for it with ads. It's it's kind of
1: worse than that over time. The reason why I think there's like television lost its equilibrium was um, it moved away from being a business. It's it's not a a, a B2C business. Mm -hmm. It's a B2B business. So you, if you're AMC, you have to make Comcast happy. You don't have to make the audience happy. Mm-hmm. And Comcast will pay you um, if they're happy for, on whatever basis they're doing it. And the ratings matter only because you get the advertising. But that's less than half of the money to any of these networks. Right. Mostly it's those carriage fees. So there's not, they're, not that, they're not as interested as I am in keeping the audience happy. And I have to keep the audience happy because we have a one-click cancel. Mm-hmm. If you're not watching enough Netflix, if you're not enjoying what you're watching, you go on and click and you're done. So we, we're definitely There's invested There's no one on the phone
2: in. to offer. We'll give it to you for $11, yeah. for $10, no, no, for $8, no. We'll bundle yeah. the phone. Yeah. You
1: click it and you're done. So we have a, you know, people can choose in and out of Netflix every day. So we really care about what the audience is watching and how they love it.
2: A pet theory that I've had that I've always wanted to ask yeah. you about is that, you know, because your business is subscribers, that your goal should be to maximize the number of subscribers, to constantly grow. Yeah. Which tells me, which, which should t- suggest to me that you would want to put your thumb on the scale of a show that adds the next marginal user. So for example, if you find that like you're doing really, really well with all demographics, but for some reason, older Hispanics just aren't subscribing to Netflix. That If someone comes to you with, say, two brilliant shows, you know, one's a brilliant show for like, that's like, for the incredible Kimmy Schmidt crowd, it's young, it's irreverent, and then another show is perfect for getting older Hispanics to sign up for Netflix, and you only have, you know, X million dollars to buy one of those shows, that you would buy the show that would get you the next marginal subscriber base. Is is there a thinking there that's strategic about where do we fill in the gaps of subscribers that we don't yeah, yet have in our
1: there, company? There's definitely a lot of art in the recipe, right? How much do you invest in growth versus how much do you invest in the base? So the the challenge of that, obviously, is you to, you're, you're also keeping the base happy, too. Mm-hmm. So we are always figuring out how to invest in new content verticals, is what we kind of call them, which is the idea of How do you serve an audience that we don't yet have? Grace and Frankie, I think, was our first big investment. Um, uh, Companies that start on the internet tend to be uh, young male, you know, at the beginning. uh, White, um, affluent, so a lot of those things, those characteristics, and as you get bigger, you get more mainstream. Uh, For us, like, we did not have the Grace and Frankie audience when we bought Grace and Frankie. And so for us, the way that we can check that out, the way we, how we're measuring that is when somebody joins Netflix, the thing they watch in the first 24 hours is a real strong indicator as to why they joined. Oh, interesting. So you would put a little, your thumb on the scale, to your point, yeah. for a show that has high first 24 hour watching. Um, and then you also look at things like if people who watch very little content value the things that they watch more than people who watch a lot of content, mm-hmm. who just kind of are killing time. Right. They have the TV on. So you watch the, the, low, the low usage customers watching is really valuable. So there's a lot, there's a, a constant series of thumbs on the scale for for the content.
2: I did a podcast episode for The Atlantic. I do a podcast called Crazy Genius. And the last episode that we did in our third season was about Netflix. And it was a bit of a pro con debate. We had a critic from New York Magazine, Matt Solar Seitz, who had some critical things to say about what Netflix was doing to American culture, and then we had Franklin Leonard, the founder of The Blacklist, which is this extremely influential list of unproduced screenplays that tends to ultimately bequeath a bunch of Oscar winners uh, by the end of the year, um, who defended a lot of what Netflix uh, was doing. And I wanna give you what I consider the strongest arguments on both sides okay. and have you react to it. So, Matt Suler cites, and to a certain extent, this is a criticism that's shared by a lot of people in Brooklyn media. Basically said that um, you know, and I, 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 he said to a certain extent, and this is this is my attempt to channel him. Um, Netflix is to blame for the algorithmic narcotizing of the American population. That it's giving us content that isn't good. That's just keeping us attached to our screens, and that we might previously have reached for art and reached for difficulty. But Netflix keeps us confined in these algorithmic niches where we just watch the same familiar thing followed by the same familiar thing until we're basically just zonked out on the couch watching, watching rerun after rerun after rerun. <laughs> what do you say to
3: that?
1: I don't, that's an alternate universe. Um, in, first of all, the, the programming that we put on the air, um, the idea that they're somehow algorithmically created is foolishness. We don't write or create anything at Netflix, really. Our, the writers, the creators who come to us uh, do that. And, we're, and this, these are the shows that they would be making before in any other, for any other outlet. The, the one interesting thing that's kind of under-appreciated is it's almost the opposite of this argument, so this is a good counter to it. What House of Cards did that was different than everything else up until that point was the show was written to be watched altogether. So everything on Netflix is, you know, had been all at once because it was a year after it was on TV. So when you do a network TV show or uh, not just network, any premium, any show that's on once a week, that you lose 15 to 40 percent of the audience episode to episode. So if you're watching this show, it's possible that almost half the audience didn't see last week. So what they wind up doing in those shows is they wind up writing a bunch of exposition to remind the audience what happened last week, and, and sometimes they even do that between the commercial breaks, because they know they lose people in the, some people just came in during the commercial. So they're going to tell you what last happened before the commercial. CSI, right. No, I mean, actually worked into the creative, into the, the, these unnatural stories, mm-hmm. the way that you and I are talking, and I said, oh, I'm, I'll be back tomorrow, because remember, I got that <laughs> <Right>. job downtown, <laughs> <Right>. So <laughs> which we found out about last week. Right. So by the time you do all that, you actually lose storytelling time. So House of Cards was actually the first show written to be, to be binged. So it was the, the writers knew not only that there would be a 26 hour, because it was guaranteed, but they knew that the people who watched this episode definitely saw the one just before it. So they didn't, they, didn't do, they didn't have to do all that. And by the end of the season, you have 15 or 20 minutes per episode that you can add back into richer storytelling, character development, and all that kind of stuff. So it actually changed the structure of television writing pretty fundamentally, yeah. in the opposite direction of what this person is making that argument. That's interesting. Yeah. Um, Franklin Leonard made the argument that
2: um, you know, there were all of these uh, ancient assumptions about what worked and didn't work in Hollywood. There were assumptions that, for example, you know, movies with black leads wouldn't work overseas because people in Asia wouldn't want to watch a black cast, or that uh, superhero movies or, or thrillers that starred women wouldn't necessarily work in the US. And he said, Netflix, in a weird way, by simply following the data, by being unbiased by 20th century assumptions and simply following, looking at the audience and seeing what they're watching, was able to overturn a lot of these ancient biases with their programming. You know, Most famously, something like Orange is the New Black is not the kind of show that I think someone in, say, 1991 would expect to be an enormous hit on television. Right, right. But look at it. Um, to what extent, do you, how, how much do you relish Netflix overturning uh, conventional wisdoms in Hollywood? It,
1: it's, my, it's my favorite part of the job, honestly. And I feel like it's one of, the, it's one of those things like what, what data would be useless, is useless for, is finding the next big thing. Because data is really good at figuring out what people are doing already based on the things that are already there and what they have to choose from. So all this conventional wisdom is based on this thing that failed once. Mm-hmm. And then somebody, one buyer who's still around, who talk, tells that horror story up to people. And mostly people, like I said, a lot of the, the entertainment culture is so fear based. You know, people don't want to get fired. So the reason you don't get, you don't, don't, you don't get fired if you do things the way they've always been done and they don't work. Yeah. Yeah, you, you get fired if you try something new and it doesn't work. They think you're nuts. So when, and so we, we get the opportunity to keep doing And remember, the, the nice thing about our entry into all this was it's a, it's a, our, our environment's a lot more forgiving than it would be for a network. A network has three hours of prime time, five days a week. That's it. You better choose well. And that show better be great, and you better put it before and after the right show or they're gonna fail. So there's all those things that we don't have to deal with. And people look at Netflix, and then one thing is, is they watch the show for a minute, they, they, are, they fall into it, they love it. If they don't, they turn it off and watch something else, and they really are about, ba- so the stakes of any one of those shows is not as high as it is for everybody else, which gives us the opportunity to do something like a, a show um, out, of the, uh, out of the UK called uh, Sex Education. Right, um, which so that is that one too. Yeah, and, and, this, and the, uh, Laurie Nunn, who's the, um, uh, the showrunner on the show, uh, in her 20s, uh, uh, had worked in a couple of writer's rooms, but never had run a, a television show ever. Yeah. Uh, and we can take a chance on people who are promising and, and stories that are different but promising uh, and you know who, who really can pull it off. And you're gonna, you have some nice, nice surprises in there.
0: It's Aspen Ideas To Go, thanks for listening. This year, Aspen Ideas To Go featured discussions on just about every topic you can imagine, from the science behind why birds are so smart to how activists are most effectively addressing climate change. Our speakers covered politics, economics, social issues, and happiness. Remember when best-selling author Tara Westover sang?
3: When I in
0: awesome wonder. Or when free solo rock climber Alex Honnold described overcoming fear?
1: you know, the only way that it really works out is if you can maintain that confidence throughout. I mean, you know, basically, if you get scared while free soloing, it all starts to crumble a little bit.
0: Find the top 10 podcasts of 2019 on our website, aspenideas.org. Download and re-listen to your favorites and discover new talks that will expand your perspective. Go to aspenideas.org and search top 10 podcasts. Happy listening and happy holidays. Let's get back to our featured conversation. Here's Derek Thompson.
2: Journey toward the future. um, Earlier this month, a uh, small niche entertainment company launched a streaming service. Its name escapes me. Um, Oh, oh, that's right. Um, The writers of reality have a sense of dramatic irony, so we are, of course, in the Walt Disney Family Museum. Um, The uh, Disney Plus... Uh, you know, signed up 10 million people in the first 24 hours, um, it's obviously going to succeed on a certain basis in its own right. Um, you know, one thing when I, that I think of when I compare Netflix to Disney is that Netflix has this head start, but Disney has all this strong IP. They have Star Wars, and they have Pixar, and they have Marvel, and they have this enormous back catalog of animated classics. Um, do you think that Netflix needs more franchises to compete with Disney?
1: I don't think so. I think franchises are just sequels; they're just second seasons, right? Which is not like that's the there's any lock on having franchises. I think if anything, and, and I'm sure everything you just said is accurate. I think you know Disney are great storytellers. They're they've they run cruise ships for crying out loud. They'll figure stuff out. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> but I think about, like, uh, there's something about those franchises that are, um, a, I think, a blessing and a curse. I think that you're, you're trapped in a couple of, a couple of universes. Mm-hmm. And th- there is something quite freeing about not having IP gods that we're serving uh, and that we can create a, you know, much more broadly across a lot of different storytellers. A more polytheistic
2: thing. universe.
1: Exactly. Yes. Versus, and, and I think when, and what happens is you get something, is Stranger Things a universe, is Stranger Things a franchise? Yeah, it is. And it's spin offable and uh, sell toysable. It's all those kind of things. Uh, but, it, it, in a, but in general, that isn't what drives the business. It's great storytelling that drives the business.
2: So you look at these companies, and it's interesting. So half of Disney's profits come from amusement parks and merchandise. Um, it is, of course, a, a media company, but almost half of its profits come from cruise ships and uh, roller coasters and bedsheets. You look at HBO Max. Owned by AT&T, which is a phone company. Amazon Prime Video, another streaming competitor owned by an online retailer. Apple now has TV now. It's not in the media business, qua media business. It's in the business of selling hardware and software to go with the iPhones. Um, Even Airbnb, I read today, is trying to get into the streaming business. Um, (laughs) In a weird way, when you put all this together, it makes Netflix seem like the odd man out which is curious because you guys are the first, you're the OG disruptor of this business model. (laughs) And yet you're also the one company, that at least of those that I named, that has the simple business model of you watch TV, you give us your money, we buy more TV, that's it. Yeah. Is that simplicity a blessing or a curse?
1: I think that's a huge blessing. More than anything, it's because it enables us to move very fast. So all those things that you described going, not just being international, but having half of our subscribers being international in five years. Um, if we had international distribution deals in place with other networks or other theatrical distributors for our movies, we'd have to wait for them to unwind, we'd have to have this internal analysis around, well, we have to do better than this, and someone's going to say, put their bonus on the line that we can do better if not being international and just selling our stuff and all those things. And so it gives us the ability to say, we, have one, we really have one product. Netflix is a one-product company. And we, that we focus every bit of our energy on making it great. The programming has to be great. The, it has to be delivered seamlessly. When you push play, it has to work. So no matter what, how great the content is, if you push play and it freezes up on you, if it doesn't remember where you were when you were watching it on your iPhone and then picked it up on the TV, all those kind of things, people don't, won't care as much how great the content is. And the reverse is true, too. You could have all this great tech. But if, if the content's not great, they don't care about that either. So you have to do both. And our, our real advantage of beyond being a one product, one service company is that we've kind of always had our feet you know kind of one foot pl- firmly planted in Silicon Valley and one foot firmly in Hollywood. And if you ask anyone who works for Netflix in LA, they think they work for the greatest entertainment company on the planet, and I, I think they're right. Um, and if you ask anyone who works here in Los Gatos, they think they work for the greatest tech company on the planet, and they're right too. And we don't really try to impose the corporate culture on one another. And we don't, there's, we don't, I don't subscribe to the idea that one is more important than the other. At the end of the day, the, the, the members matter. The viewers have to love what they're watching. And that's part UI, it's part functionality, and it's part you know tear-jerking storytelling.
2: In the 1940s, the typical American bought 35 movie tickets a year. Today, the typical American buys 3.5 movie tickets a year. And there is no question that the streaming revolution, kicked off by Netflix but joined by Disney and Apple and yeah. et cetera, is likely going to accelerate this shift away from movie theaters as yeah. the totem of movie culture. The Irishman. The audience gasped when you just said that. Yeah. I'm sorry?
1: <laughs> they gasped when you said that. The,
2: the statistic is is striking, <laughs> and the, the graph is just. Yeah. I mean, the, it's important but, to say that the graph yeah. of the decline makes it look like television, traditional television, that is broadcast and the cable bundle, is more responsible for that decline than the streaming revolution. Well, movie attendance
1: dropped every year since the the invention of television. That
2: is correct, exactly. Um, So don't just just direct the gasp toward tech. (laughs) uh, Direct the gasp. (laughs) Angle the gasp toward uh, uh, Hollywood, the cable bundle. the Irishman, however, uh, this extraordinary uh, Scorsese film that you guys are debuting, um, is going to have a short run in theaters. Yeah. I'm really interested. I'd love you to tell me about what your theory of the role of movie theaters is today. What are they for, for a company like Netflix?
1: How many have seen The Irishman in the theaters? Wow. Oh, nice. Well, um, it is, uh, for us, There's a couple, it plays a couple of roles. One is that... Um, there's a, it's a, a bit generational, meaning the filmmakers themselves when they were going to film school, when they were dreaming of their first film, uh, they dreamed of you seeing it like you're looking at us right now, mm-hmm. sitting in a group together in a dark room watching on a big screen. That's how they dreamed of having their art be realized, even though it's mostly not true. Most people, even the folks who just raised their hands, watch most of their movies at home. Most of the movies they see in a year will watch it at home. But, but there's a romance to that. that we. Uh, some of it is serving the romance that some of the audience has for that experience, and some of it is serving the romance that the filmmaker has for that experience too. Uh, there's a legitimizing effect to the movie being, you know, having been out. Um, there's a um, there's a r- rules about qualifying for the Academy Awards and those kind of things. So I want our filmmakers to be able to compete if they do the work of their life uh, to be recognized by their peers, and some of the you know some of those rules are still in place. Honestly, so,
2: how much do you care about the Academy Awards?
1: Uh, I care a lot that our filmmakers are eligible. To be honest with you, I, I, don't want my, I don't want our filmmakers to say, I don't want to make a film at Netflix that I can't win an Oscar, if they care about winning an Oscar. And remember, filmmakers get into this. Part of that is that recognition uh, that they're seeking, that acceptance that they're seeking. And that award represents a lot to them. Yeah. So I don't want it to be a, a, a handicap to us getting great films. So that's why we invest in that.
2: A couple of rapid-fire questions. Um, does Netflix want to get into sports? No. Does Netflix want to get into news? No. Does Netflix want to get into amusement parks?
1: On what time frame? <laughs> I'll
2: give you 10 what, years.
1: The great thing, interesting thing will be what is, a, what is a theme park in 20 years? That's why I ask. Because I think it's, it's interesting about the, you know, what, what role that VR experiences and things like that play in the future. Uh, versus, do theme parks get bigger or do they get smaller and more local and more, more virtual? So, so I wouldn't rule out that at some point, way down the road.
2: Interesting. Yeah. I can see I can see how the Atlantic would write that article in 2029. Um, first, Netflix, <laughs> Netflix turned your living room into a movie theater. Then Netflix yeah. turned your living room into a amusement yeah. park.
1: <laughs> I should point out, by the way, that when you asked, the, I know this is a rapid fire and I'm breaking the rules. It's okay. But. Um, If you uh, scripted drama gets time shifted uh, with the DVR or watched on demand, about 65% of the watching is done not live. Mm -hmm. Sports is 6% not live. So Netflix, one of our primary consumer promises is on demand. It's consumer control. We bring a lot of extra value to to things that people want to have control over. And that meaning, they don't think they value time-shifting sports because it's so wrapped up in knowing what, um, uh, what happened, who won. So once you know who won, it's not so fun.
2: Um, two more rapid or at least rapid-ish fire questions. Um, in five years, will 90% of Netflix's business be
1: subscriber revenue? Um, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna say yes, but who knows? I'll be honest yeah. with you. I mean, five years is all, if you had asked me a lot of questions about this business five years ago, I wouldn't have gotten mostly right, so. And last question, um, maybe
2: not as serious, uh, but still I think of great interest. In 10 years, will 90% of Netflix's shows be dropped, will the seasons be dropped all at once?
1: I, I think the all at- becoming
2: more interested in an episodic rollout?
1: No, I, mostly, I'm, again, going back to that consumer happiness thing. Uh, how many people have got into The Crown, the new season of The Crown? Say, How many people watched just one? <laughs> <There> you go.
2: <laughs> time constraint. I
1: think what you find out is is that when we, we do test so there's, a, there's about 35 maybe 40 shows that premiere in the US on a different net, on a network and then premiere on Netflix everywhere else in the world and those shows all run one a week because we want to get them close to the air date so people don't pirate them so in that if you look when we look at the the, the collective watching of a show that we put out all at once versus rolling it out one a week the collective watching is higher. Many people are less likely to fall out when they're all together. Uh, and the social media buzz that people you know, talk about, the way they talk about the show, is higher in the all-at-once releases than it is in the week-over-week. Week. So people, I think the reason why networks are so you know, hell-bent on the one-a-week and why uh, Disney, when they just launched their Mandalorian's one-a-week, they don't have that much stuff. So they're stretching it out. So you have to come back next week because they, they don't have that much to watch. We have a lot to watch, and we just put it all out once, so you can watch it at your, pay- at your own pace.
2: So, to review the rapid fire round, we have no sports, no news, uh, living room <laughs> VR amusement parks uh, that will stretch the definition of the term, um, and 90% uh, bingeable more than 90% bingeable content. And fortunately, we cannot take questions from the audience, and we will start right here with this gentleman.
3: My question for you is, I understand that Netflix is a business, and the first thing is you have to make money. But being an Aspen Fellow and talking about the good society, there are other aspects to the business. Uh, and my question has several sides. Uh, what happened three years ago at Cannes with Almodovar, talking about cinema and the department, which I understand I, I don't agree right? with him. I, you, you apologize. The thing is, Netflix, the way it's doing business, it's making it difficult for cinema as an art to live. So that's one side of it. The other side of it is the value system, The what happened with Hassan Minhaj and the episode that was removed with Saudi Arabia <coughs> and the interviews that Peter Hayes, uh, that, um had. Right. So what is the value part, either the artistic part or the? Yeah
1: or the, uh, the society part? So I'll, I'll, I'll take them in some reverse order, maybe. Um, the episode, uh, Hassan's show, A Patriot Act, I'm a hu- we're huge fans, I think Hassan is brilliant. Um, that show existed. That story was told, it was on Netflix. Uh, we didn't censor him, we didn't block him from telling a very controversial story. Um, the story bumped up against the law, against the local law that we have to adhere to local laws. Uh, in every country that we operate, and that's why we took the episode down. That episode is still on our YouTube channel in Saudi Arabia. It had been seen hundreds of of thousands of our, maybe millions of our subscribers in the Middle East, watch that show, and it exists in every other place in the world, except for that one place where it's illegal. Um, So we And and, uh, as all the topics that he covers on that show, uh, including another episode of the season that's about MBS that's also still on the service. Uh, So it's not We, we, I will support public, I will support, and this goes to the good society, uh, I support free expression. I think we do a lot better as a society by, by supporting free expression that we, even if we disagree with it. Um, And so a big part of that is allowing Hassan to make that show and not being afraid of that, that idea. Um, And we see it in things like um, uh, Queer Eye. There's a story was just out recently about a, a woman in Brazil who hadn't talked to her gay daughter in 10 years um, and then watched the episodes of Queer Eye and completely changed her view about not just, uh, about her daughter, about her, her own daughter and let alone her views on homosexuality and has now has a healthy relationship again with her daughter. Um, there are stories that we have to, um, that we feel like we can have a very positive influence on culture by introducing the world to one another by showing real life in, one, in, in, every, in every country in the world. I have a theory that the more you know people, the more you see how they live, and the more how you see how similar we all are, the less likely they want to kill each other. <laughs> and so I think that the idea of, being, of telling really interesting global stories from everywhere in the world to everywhere in the world. Some of our um, popular shows, you know, uh, we have a show called Casa de Papel from Spain, that is uh, all in Spanish. I don't know if anyone has seen the show. Here we call it Money Heist. Uh, But it is, in most countries in the world, it's the most popular show on Netflix. Um, And it is, and it's usually popular in the US too, where no one's used to watching international programming. So the idea of giving a platform to international voices and um, spreading kind of international ideas uh, is very important, much more so than censorship. And I think my experience with the Henry Crown Fellowship give me a, a, a greater appreciation for expression of ideas and thoughts. Thank you. Yeah, yes. yeah
2: um, so a couple, if you kind of compare Netflix to say a traditional studio.
1: Oh, okay, one more thing, I'm sorry, I don't want to come back. You asked about, about uh, Alderbar. Um, we, what we are doing, and it's, it's gonna be self-serving because that's what I'm here for. <laughs> <laughs> we're not hurting cinema at all. We are saving cinema. Uh, there were. Martin Scorsese tried to make The Irishman for 13 years. A, a movie, amazing screenplay by Steve Zalian, Robert De Niro, Joe Pesci, Al Pacino. Scorsese, the greatest living director, making a movie in the world that he lives in. No studio would make it. The mar- marriage story that we just came with with uh, Noah Bombeck, uh, Adam Driver, Scarlett Johansson, uh, The Two Popes with uh, Anthony Hopkins and John, Jonathan Price. These are not slam dunk box office favorites that are gonna keep things going. These are the movies that no one is making. And we are making them and finding huge global audiences for them. And we're gonna keep this art form of humans telling stories to each other alive. We're not hurting it in that way. Sir. Sure.
2: Oh, yeah. um, so sort of comparing like the old studios with the back lot to Netflix, where you're able to you know, produce a huge amount of movies and TV this year like, more than in really any other studio around the world as far as I'm aware. And you produce the content in the local languages, you know, uh, around the world, which From is all. One hundred and
1: thirty seasons of local shows this year. Yeah, the, the older studios are just not not doing right. I was just curious at what you've learned about the the making the actual production process.
2: Like, right. I know you're such a data focused company. I'm curious, like, what you've learned about how to make content more efficiently.
1: Um, it's an interesting thing. We want to we obviously try to make things more efficiently, try to work on those, but. I, the main one is we try to make it better. And if we can do that, it kind of supersedes the efficiency a little bit. Because the, the, what you save on, some, on something here and there, in a, in a giant hit, it doesn't make much of a difference. And in a huge failure, it definitely doesn't make a difference. So you really are just trying to make the best version of what you're out for. It is interesting, though, that depending on where you're shooting, in, in Italy, television is very influenced by cinema. And Italian cinema is famously slow <laughs> to come, come together. Very, it's very expensive because they take a lot of production days and the sets are very relaxed. It's a very different process. Uh, so it might take 13 to 15 days an episode to shoot an Italian show versus you know eight to, 8 to 10 days in most places. Uh, and really, but going into, these, into a market and appreciating what it is that's happening first is most important. And then see if you can help. By, you know, by shortening the production schedules, by doing some, adding some efficiencies to the, to the production cycle. Usually it's days of shooting that matters. Um, and if you could do that by getting the same show in, a fewer, in fewer days, that's a good thing. And what we're finding is that that is different all over the world. I mean, there's a kind of run and gun television that happens in some places, super gorilla, very inexpensive. And we go in and produce more like film, too, uh, with higher production standards. In some places, that's usually welcomed. Um, but you have to figure out like what are the tastes of the public. So sometimes you're in France has very great scripted drama television. Uh, India really doesn't. I mean, India has a lot of soap operas and a lot of political talk shows and those kind of things. But it's a big movie culture. But there is no Breaking Bad in India. Um, so what we're able to do is go in and kind of create this thing that's very new to the country, which is a kind of a cinema, cinema infused television. Uh, and that's so it's very very new. So we're not. Um, we, we don't really have anyone ahead of us, to, so we're really kind of pioneering and figuring out as we go. Please.
2: Thank you. I'm curious to know, um, actually two questions, what are some of your all-time favorite movies and what are some of the, the hidden gems
0: on Netflix that none of us have heard of? <laughs> <laughs> um,
1: my, my, I have a, a fluid top five that move around a lot, but like I, I love The Godfather. I love uh, Lost in America. Um, I love Airplane, uh, so uh, <laughs> these are movies that I've seen over and over again and, and they shift around a lot. And the classic cinema, you know, I, I, uh, I'm like everyone else on the planet, Citizen Kane is pretty tough to beat. Um, Hidden Gems, there's one show that uh, you'll, know, you'll learn my taste here, because no, I'm the only one who loves this show anywhere in the world, I think. It was a show that we had to unfortunately cancel called Lady Dynamite. Uh, that's one of the shows that I, I wish people would appreciate as much as I do.
2: (laughs) I'm gonna go on this side of the room, right over there.
1: Um, How do you decide which shows are DVD only and which shows are streamed? Um, So the DVD only business is honestly a tiny sidebar of the business. Now we still have a few million people that take the DVDs in the mail. uh, And it's basically they get everything they can get on DVD. Um, So they're, they're, they're not curated at all. They're just mostly getting what they get, getting what's available. Uh, and then on streaming, it's all individually licensed for time for windows. And then we create original programming.
2: Go to the back. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. In uh,
3: Mr. Smith goes to Washington?
1: <laughs> James. Uh, Stewart. Would've, that would have made the list too. I should have thought of that.
3: <laughs> James Stewart croaks. Um, lost causes are the only causes worth fighting for. Um, do you have lost causes? Netflix commercially unsuccessful programming. A lady, I kind of thought. Like- <laughs> and perhaps still are? I, I, think
1: it's, I think there are, like I said, there are some things that punch above their weight in terms of viewing relative to cost that you kind of wink and go, let go because of their either because They're very important. The problem that I run into is that the things if you, you're fighting for because that is an important message. If no one watches it, the message didn't land. And you didn't give someone else the microphone you know, to tell that story. So I do. I do think it's important that you don't kind of occupy the space with things that you might think are are, are important, but others don't enough to, to to watch it. Because I think really what you do is you stifle the next voice that's coming along that might do a better job of telling that story or getting that point across. So I try not. There are some there are some cause, lost causes that you just that keep breaking through.
0: Sure. Uh, yes, could you talk about your uh, relationship with the Obamas and uh, documentaries that you're making, like um, American, yeah, American Factory. Factory,
1: Yeah, which was amazing. Yeah. Um, so the Obamas uh, formed a great production company called Higher Ground. Uh, their intent post-presidency is to um, tell great stories uh, uh, that kind of match the values of the, of, uh, that they had, but through entertainment, uh, both scripted, dra- scripted and unscripted. Uh, and the first thing out will be Ameri- was is American Factory, which uh, if you have not seen it, it's a phenomenal documentary. Um, and we've got it they, but they're doing things across the board, um, children's programming, uh, f- feature films as well. nothing I could announce on their behalf yet. Uh, but we've uh, they're doing an overall production deal with them so that they're producing original programming for us.
2: So. It's interesting to think that there are specific expectations in countries about how, Television programming should be told that sometimes there's a maybe there's a Korean strategy that says the, the story has to end We're not ready for seasons. We want the entire story to be finished. It should be like a novel and the novel is closed and you're done um, There's the sort of British Expectation yeah. that shows should be shorter the office was only a handful of episodes the house of cards uh, British miniseries was I believe three episodes three maybe hours, four? Yeah. yeah, three hours yeah. long um, Do you ever find is there ever resistance to Netflix being a you know, Hollywood, San Francisco production, over-aggressively enforcing American-style television packaging on cultures that are used to their own yeah, thing?
1: It's not by our design, most of the time. The, most of the sh- these are by showrunners, or the, the local showrunner. Let them lead. We let them lead on okay. it. And they wanted to make, in the case of the Kingdom, they wanted to make an American-style or American delivery-style television show, but, in, but, it, but true to Korean storytelling. So that, we de- definitely, they definitely lead. I think there's an interesting thing that I think that develops over time with television, it might be the, the, what happens in SVOD uh, to the world, to television, is every time you do a show and you love it, like right now, I like success, HBO, I'm a big fan of Succession. Um, I was a huge fan of Barry, season one of Barry. Um, I loved, I, I would say I loved that show. I thought the last episode of the first season was the perfect ending to a TV show. It should have been the last episode ever. And I have not seen it t- season two of Barry, and I loved it. So it's like it's very, and what happens over time is, every time you make a show now, you're not just competing with what else is on Wednesday night at 8 o'clock, you're competing with everything ever made. <laughs> and every year, the new season comes out, and you're repeating with everything ever made, plus the 500 things that came out this year. So the bar keeps getting raised on, even shows you love the fact that you're gonna, when well, you get back to them. And every once in a while, a show like The Crown is bigger in season three than it was in season one. Ozark is bigger in season two than season one. But for the most part, it's really hard to get the audience back, even a loving audience. So that, that is a change, I think, in television, which is, make, I, I think an evolution, a natural evolution might be that it becomes more like British television. Hmm. And what I really encourage uh, when people come in to pitch to us is tell this show to make this film in exactly the running time you need. If it's five hours and done, that's five hours and done. Uh, um, there's a, didn't we see Godless? We had a, a miniseries called Godless, a great Western miniseries. Okay, it came in to Netflix as a feature film. And our team that read the film said, oh, this is a great script, but there's like 50 stories that don't, that don't go in, that, that are missing. Like I wanna know more about this town, I wanna know about, more about these women. And he said, oh great, I cut 150 pages out of the script. So I said, well, and they went, took it back out for six months and came back, and it was a six, we did it as a six-hour mini. So I, it, I want the stories to organically be as long or short as they need to be or should be. Sir. you fast-forward out a number of years with all the new entrants in streaming video, you're competing for share of wallet and share of time. At the same time, content is getting more expensive for you to purchase. Who are the winners, and how did the economics shake out over time? You guys, the fans are the winners because I think right, television has never been a greater value. Um, I think in terms of time spent, in terms of quality of the time spent, uh, and the kind of relative value proposition. Um, So I think the the winners in general, it's gonna, it it has to start with the viewers and the consumers have to win first, Uh, and then people who figure that out the best, which is still gonna be to, to, to be determined over the next decades. Uh, we'll be the the business winners in that.
2: And one incredible statistic that I just saw, if you add up the amount of money that the top nine entertainment companies are going to spend on content in 2020, you have Netflix and Disney, what it's spending on both uh, original programming and on sports rights, you you add in Time Warner all the way down to Discovery, it's $100 billion. $100 billion on entertainment in 2020. No one can say w- what the landscape is necessarily going to look like in 2030. But you know, who's the winner in 2020? It's the people who are having $100 billion spent that's what, on behalf of. Yeah, that's right, it's yeah. us in this room, yeah. it's you, sir, it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's everyone.
1: Yes?
3: So you mentioned your unconventional education and <laughs> learning by doing, and that made all the difference. With all the creators that you see and who pitch to you and all the content yeah. you discover,
0: I, what is your advice for future storytellers? I have a 17-year-old who wants to be a filmmaker. Is it film school, where, where, or what do you think?
1: Um, film schools are evolving so fast. At Chapman, they put a camera in their hands the first day. Oh. And I go you know, everywhere else, I've looked at everywhere. I speak at a lot of co- colleges around the world, and they mostly are, you don't know, get to start shooting for a year or two. Um, they are shooting the first day at Chapman. Um, they're, they're, at USC, they still teach a, school, a class on writing a pilot. there's going to be people writing producing pilots very much so the idea is i think that yes but but i do think that the film school experience the fellowship the network that's created and all those kind of things is really valuable um it's it's certainly i mean i i i hate my situation with my with my own kids because i they're trying to tell them how important school is when i dropped out of community college two years in but they you did okay uh but i'm just been tremendously lucky and also that I' st- I'm stuck in the same business for my entire adult life. Uh, where they've what I missed out on was the opportunity and the networkship and the fellowship and all that stuff that, that comes with it that I get to see my, my kids experience. Um, everyone, please
2: thank uh, Ted Sarandos.
0: <laughs> Ted Sarandos is Chief Content Officer at Netflix. He manages the teams responsible for the acquisition and creation of content, including original series like Stranger Things. Derek Thompson writes for The Atlantic. He's also a news analyst and weekly contributor to NPR's Here and Now, CBS, and MSNBC. Their conversation was held in November in San Francisco. Make sure to subscribe to Aspen Ideas To Go wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow Aspen Ideas year-round on Twitter and Facebook. Listen on our website, aspenideas.org, and sign up for our newsletter. Today's show was produced by Marcy Krivenin and me and recorded by our team at the Aspen Institute. The Aspen Institute's Society of Fellows program helped produce today's talk. It was held as part of the Morris series. Our music is by Wonderly. I'm Trisha Johnson. Thanks for joining me.